This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. It is truly a joy to declare that our God reigns. It is truly a joy to come together with people who can declare that and believe that and exclaim it as one body who will be eventually rejoicing together before the throne, declaring that forever. So I'm really excited to be here with you guys this morning and to be able to proclaim the majesty of our King. Now, as I open today the sermon in prayer, I want to inform you that what I am praying is actually a prayer that was written before. It was not written by me. It was written by an unnamed Puritan writer hundreds of years ago. And for those who are visiting and, and are unaware, it's very unusual for anyone in this pulpit to pray, especially during a sermon, a written prayer, especially one that was not written by themselves and one that was written so long ago. But I want you to know there's nothing wrong with praying a written prayer as long as the prayer is not uh, wrote, that as long as it is not um, ritualistic, as long as it is heartfelt and meant by that one praying it and meant by those who are joining together with a person praying. So the reason that I'm praying this prayer today, the reason that I'm going to pray this very old prayer is because I came across it this week and it came uh, so perfectly together with the with the material in the text that we're considering today. Now, I've been praying it in my heart this week even as I have been preparing this sermon. And I've been praying it to myself, or not to myself, but to the Lord from myself, in a much more Caleb Bunch modern English format than what you will hear today. Uh, but it's been something that has been resonating in my heart as I've been praying to the Lord. The language in this in this prayer is a little bit antiquated, but the words are as rich as any prayer that I have ever heard. So I would ask that as I pray this morning that you please join together with me before the throne of grace. O oh, Father... Thou hast made man for the glory of thyself. And when not an instrument of that glory, he is a thing of naught. No sin is greater than the sin of unbelief. For if union with Christ is the greatest good, unbelief is the greatest sin, as being crossed to thy command. I see that whatever my sin is, yet no sin is like disunion from Christ by unbelief. Lord, Keep me from committing the greatest sin in departing from him. For I can never in this life perfectly obey and cleave to Christ. When thou takest away my outward blessings, it is for sin in not acknowledging that all I have is of thee. In not serving thee through what I have. In making myself secure and hardened. Lawful blessings are secret idols and do much hurt. When the greatest injury is the having the greatest good is the taking away. In love, divest me of blessings that I might glorify thee more. Remove the fuel of my sin, and may I prize the gain of a little holiness as overbalancing all my losses. The more I love thee with a truly gracious love, the more I desire to love thee. And the more miserable I am, at my want of love, the more I hunger and thirst after thee, the more I faint and fail in finding thee, the more my heart is broken for sin, and the more I pray it may be far more broken. My great evil is that I do not remember the sins of my youth. No, the sins of the day I forget the next. But keep me from all the things that turn unbelief or lack of felt union with Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. I know that we are going through a book, the book of Mark, but please, uh, for this morning, turn to Matthew 5. <clears throat> Many here, by the way, have um, commented on uh, the current hairstyle that I'm wearing this morning. Uh, they will notice that it is sig significantly different than the way I looked a week ago. And this is true. This is a very true statement. The reason why I look different is this fateful Wednesday of the previous week, I went to a barbershop to get a trim. And it looked, I looked around, I looked for a style that I would like. I, I looked online, I found a picture, an image of what I wanted to look like. 
And I took that in on my iPad. I carried this in, and I showed it to the person, the, to the lady who was going to cut my hair. And I said, you know, is this something you can do? And she said, sure, we can do that. No problem. So I sat down in the barber chair, and she put on that fancy apron thing and sprayed my hair with some water. And then she pulled out her buzzers and goes, and I said, whoa, 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 that's, that's, that's not what I showed you in the picture at all. And the picture's still sitting on my lap. I showed her the exact blueprints. But she was not careful with what she heard. This will be important for us as we think about our text this morning. One of the most important things that any one of us has to learn as we are students of the Bible is that we have to learn, we have to begin to understand that context is king. Many false teachings and even misunderstandings have been uh, come out of the scripture and have been taught and have been believed by many Christians because they have either accidentally or even sometimes perfect, uh, purposefully ignored the way that the original uh, audience was supposed to receive this text. The author was writing to a particular group of people in a particular group of time, and one of the most common mistakes that people make when studying their Bible is they don't take into consideration for whom the original text was written and who it was intended to be speaking to. So let me give you an example that I hope will be helpful, and I know it will be because it supplements what we'll be learning from our text this morning. That's why you're in Matthew 5. Please scroll down with your eyes to Matthew 5, verse 14, and look with me just at the first sentence. You are the light of the world. Now, we should stop after reading that and pause and consider the question, who is Jesus speaking to? To whom is he referencing? What is he saying here? Who is the light of the world? Because he says, you are the light of the world. Does that mean that everyone who ever reads this verse or hears this verse is the light of the world? Was Adolf Hitler the light of the world? Is every human being in the world the light of the world? And the, the simple answer is no. And what I would like to do is I would like to show you from the context three different things that we can see that will help us identify who is the light of the world that Jesus is speaking about here. Consider the rest of this text. We'll go through verse 16 with me. Who is the light of the world? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me show you three things that we can tell that will help us identify who Jesus is speaking to. First of all, it's clear that he's not speaking universally. We can, we can quickly demarcate that he is not speaking about every person in the entire world because he says there are others before whom our light is supposed to shine. So there are those who are you, you are the light of the world, and there are those who are they, the others that Jesus is referencing. Not everyone is the light of the world. Some people are, and some people are not. Now let's get a little bit more specific from this text. Who are the light of the world? This verse gives us a really major clue. It tells us that Jesus is speaking to the children of God. Consider what it says. We know that Jesus tells them their goal in doing good works is to bring glory. Remember there are these others, these other people. The goal is that doing good works by the people who are considered the light of the world will bring them to give glory to their father who is in heaven, right? So it means the people who are the light of the world are children of God. Their father is God. They are therefore children of God. Who is the light of the world? Children of God are the light of the world. But what we should also do in studying this text is we should zoom out farther than what we will do today. And what I would like you to do is take your finger and scroll up in your Bible up to the first several verses of this chapter. And what you will see is the Beatitudes. And Jesus here in the Beatitudes is declaring what a disciple is like. He is lovingly and beautifully explaining to us what a disciple is. He is showing us that true disciples respond differently than the world to negative stimuli like hatred and persecution. He is showing us that people who are true disciples have different priorities than the world. And in that we see he is referencing what a true disciple is. And then what directly follows the Beatitudes is this statement about you. Those people who are identified with the Beatitudes, you true disciples are the light of the world. Who is the light of the world? True disciples, children of God, light of the world. They are equivalent across 
the board. But we can only know that from studying the context. But this will be very helpful to us as we consider our text today. You see, context is king. Now, please turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4. That's where we'll find our text today. But our text is astonishingly similar to what we just read here in Matthew 5. There is a big similarity between the two, and you'll see some of the visual nature of the similarities. As I look into Mark 4, though, what I must tell you is the message of our passage, which is verses 21 through 25, can be easily misunderstood and misconstrued if we don't understand to whom Jesus is speaking. So let's ask the greater context that question. Jesus, who are you speaking to? Look with me up to verse 1 and 2. Mark 4, verses 1 and 2. It says this. Again, he which is Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. There are two words that I want you to focus in on here. One is crowd. There is a large crowd that Jesus is speaking to, but the second word, and I think a very helpful word for us to understand, is the word parables. It is a plural word. Why is that an important word? Why am I pointing to that? Well, that's an important word because I want you to once again use your finger and scroll down the page, and what you'll see is in that first 20 verses, there are two scenes that take place. The first scene is Jesus speaking in the boat, using the boat as a floating pulpit as he declares to the people in the crowd. He is speaking to them the parable that we studied last week, the parable of the soils. But then, in starting in verse 10 and going through verse 20, what we have happening is Jesus is speaking in private to the disciples. He is having a private conversation with a small group of people as he is explaining to them the meaning of the parables. So it seems as though... If we are reading in our modern, uh, the modern way that we read, it seems as though the preaching has ended. Now Jesus has gone to explain the parables, and then anything that comes after is going to sequentially come in a later date, right? But that's not what's going on here. What Mark has done is he has taken us temporarily in verses 10 through 20 out of the preaching so he can explain the first parable. And then starting in verse 21, he's going right back to the boat where Jesus is floating on the pulpit and proclaiming the parables. So remember it said he taught them in parables, Well, we are continuing the teaching to the crowd. He is speaking to a large audience. So that's the first step in us understanding who is Jesus speaking to. But the second thing that we have to understand in regards to who is Jesus speaking to with this parable is we have to understand what Jesus said, uh, the nature of the parables are back in verse 11. Consider when Jesus is speaking to the disciples what he has to say to them. He tells them in verse 11 to you has been given. The secret, this word secret, mysterion in Greek, the mystery has been revealed to you of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So he is communicating to the crowd. And as we learned last week, even though he is speaking to a large audience, he is actually seeking to give a message to those who are his true disciples. The parables serve as a cloak. They serve as a shield over the true meaning of the teaching of Jesus. And the information that is being concealed is intended by Jesus to be understood by those who are his true disciples. So that's our context for today. Who is Jesus speaking to? He is speaking to those who are true disciples. We see that clearly from the earlier parts of Mark chapter 4. But now I would like to ask you to follow along as I read verses 21 through 25, which is our text this morning. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now I hope you saw something in this text. I hope you saw that Jesus has repeated himself from something we saw last week. 
Back in verse 9, Jesus said the same words that he is now going to repeat here in verse 23, which is the phrase, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. But this time, Jesus expands on that statement. He continues that statement by saying in this warning, pay attention to what you hear. So to those who do have an ear to hear, pay attention. It's not automatic. Listen, you do have an ear to hear. Okay, good. Then be careful. Pay attention. Take heed how you hear. What our text today contains are two parables. And both of them deal with responsibility about how we hear. Those who are the good soil that we talked about last week. Those who are able to have and understand the secrets of the kingdom of God. We have also been given a responsibility. And we are going to see that responsibility revealed to us in two ways in today's text. So the remainder of the sermon will be divided into two parts. And it's based upon these two parables. First, we will consider the lamp. And second, we will consider the measure. First, the lamp. Yesterday, my daughter Petra, who is so sweet and loving and precious, she turned three years old. It's terrifying to me. She's growing up really fast. But Petra turned three, and because it was her birthday, we had presents wrapped up, and they were sitting around our house. And Petra, she loves life and she loves presents. And so she would try her best to find ways into those presents and just to peek, just to maybe peel a little paper off of them. She wanted to get into those presents. And Ashley and I would, would say, you know, Petra, we love you, but it's, it's not time to open those presents yet. Those presents were a gift to her, but they were concealed. But that concealment was never intended to last forever. That was a temporary concealment by design. We were desirous for her to receive that gift, but it was not time for everything to be revealed yet. In this series, I have hammered home on multiple occasions the reality that Mark, he talks about this messianic secret all the time. What is the messianic secret? It's the fact that Jesus is the holy eternal son of God and he's walking around with people and doing things that only God can do. And as he's doing them, he would do things like he would cast out a demon and tell the demon, don't tell anyone who I am. That's shocking. But it tells us in Mark that he didn't do that once. He didn't even do that twice. He did that over and over and over as he would cast out demons and declare, do not tell them who I am. He would do things like healing a man of leprosy, this death sentence in the ancient world. And he would heal the man and tell him, just don't tell anybody what I've done for you. Jesus was covering his tracks on some level. He is covering up a little bit of who he is. He's not seeking to fully declare his identity yet. Events like this occur constantly, but what we see here in the parables is that Jesus is not just concealing who he is because of the way that he is proclaiming to these demons or telling people not to say that he's healed them. He's also doing it by preaching in parables. He is covering up a little bit of his identity by preaching in these parables. So let me ask you this question. Who who is the best preacher who has ever lived? Ever. It's not Charles Spurgeon. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the best preacher who has ever lived. But should I, as a preacher, try to imitate the way that Jesus preached? Should we, as people who share the gospel and who preach to our children and to our spouses and to ourselves, should we seek to preach as Jesus preached? And the answer is no. And the answer might shock you a little bit, but the answer is important for us to understand. Let me, let me try to explain my point. My point is in our text today. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Jesus intended fully for the truth about him to be expressed, to be declared, to be proclaimed, to be announced, to be articulated, to be publicized, to be broadcast. Even the scripture tells us that it is for the purpose of us declaring it, shouting it from the rooftops. Jesus never intended for his identity to be silenced forever. He desired for people to know who he is. And what we are learning in our text is that he wants everyone to know who he is, just not yet concealed temporarily so consider matthew chapter 10 verse 26 through 27 when jesus sends out the 12 these 12 disciples that are so close to jesus that he has been speaking to and when he tells them about the parable of the soils he's speaking to these 12 consider what jesus tells these 12 when he sends them out he says so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known Now, consider what he says to the disciples right here. This is key. He says to them, 
What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim from the rooftops. Jesus is telling the disciples, right now it's the time, we're just getting a little bit more loud about who I am. We're going public right here, right now. That's really important for us to understand. There is a temporary concealment for a temporary moment, but eventually the message of Christ was designed to explode, to be exclaimed and declared to the world. Consider another argument to explain this. Consider the content of your Bible. We are holding, most of us in this room, a Bible, a printed copy of the Word of God. And what that contains here in chapter 4 is a private conversation that Jesus had with the disciples, with the twelve. Jesus has spoken to them, and he has spoken to them and expressly explained This is not for them to understand. I am not telling all of them. I'm telling them in parables so that they don't understand. I am telling you because the secret has been given to you. Mark, what are you doing? He's telling the secret to everyone. He has written it down and has been copied thousands upon thousands, millions of times. And even most of us here are holding a copy of the secret words of Jesus right now. Why is that? Because Jesus never intended for this conversation to remain concealed. Let's consider for a moment the apostles. They never hold back from exclaiming the majesties and the excellencies of King Jesus. Why not? Why didn't they veil it? Why didn't they conceal it? Why didn't they speak in parables? Why not? The answer is in our text today. Because is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? No. Consider how ridiculous that, that's just, that's absurdity. Let's say this week you come over to my house, maybe on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, you come over, you want to hang out, and you come to my house, and as you come in, you realize there are no lights on in my, our house, and you think that's a little weird, so you, you know, you're trying to be polite, but you say, you know, hey, can we just, you know, turn on some lights? That would be nice. We could have a better conversation that way, and I say, okay, no problem. I walk over and flip the light switch on, and not much changes. There's just a faint glow and you see from the other room a light bulb under my bed, and you you see that I have placed the light from my house under my bed. That's absurd. Nobody does that. There's a lot of weird things that have come into style, both in clothing and in, in the way that people decorate their homes. That will never be in style. That will never come into vogue. Why? Why not? Because it's absurd. It's craziness. But do you know what else is absurd and crazy? It is absurd and crazy for those of us who know Jesus Christ, To cover it up, to conceal it, to not shine and declare the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Hiding the gospel is just as absurd as putting a light under a basket or under your bed. Jesus is worthy to be exalted. He is worthy to be declared and proclaimed. He is worthy of that here in this room. And as we have been singing this morning, our God reigns. Yes, amen. And as we sang about how the fact that he reigns is displayed to us in the fact that Jesus humbly came and died on behalf of sinners like you and me. Yes, and amen. But he is also worthy to be declared and exclaimed and worshipped and praised and pronounced out there in the world where we live. At the beginning of the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts, we read about the apostles being detained. They're, they're questioned by the Sanhedrin, which are the ruling body of the nation of Israel. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, they said, this Sanhedrin, they said to the apostles, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching. We told you don't do it, and now Jerusalem is filled. This word is probably surprising to you what it means in english if we translate it literally is filled full that's what it means exactly what it says it means filled everyone in jerusalem is talking about jesus and his teachings consider that jerusalem was filled is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a sand no i pray that the lord might cause us to be more like these apostles Each and every one of us to be more like these apostles so that our neighborhoods, so that our homes, so that our our places of work might be filled with the teachings of Jesus. Because we carry with us the light. We carry with us the gospel. Let's not conceal it. Continuing on with the same thought, in Acts chapter 17, the Christians of Thessalonica are confronted. And they're confronted by pagans who hate the gospel. They hate God. And they say, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And they're upset. 
these people who are pagans, who hate God, they recognize something. The teachings that these people are exclaiming, they have literally, just a handful of people have turned the world upside down. Everyone has been changed by this message that has been proclaimed. So they have to accept it or reject it, but everybody is is buzzing about this teaching. I pray the Lord might cause us to be more like these early Christians. They didn't hide what they knew about Jesus. And their their situation was much more challenging than ours. You know, we talk about being persecuted here in America. It's, it's a completely different world. Persecution is not even close to what they were experiencing. It's not close to what people are experiencing in other parts of the world right now, today, this morning. Their efforts of evangelism were so explosive that the lost pagans of Thessalonica could say that they had turned the world upside down. Now, I want you to consider with me uh, the following fact. In the book of John, there are seven I am statements, right? Jesus says in John 10, I am the door. But you know what Jesus never says in, in the Bible? He never says, you are the door. He never says that. In John 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. But you know what he never says? You are the bread of life. He never says that. He says in John chapter 15, I am the true vine. But he never says, you are the true vine. He says, you are the branches. You're not the true vine. You're the branches. He never says that. But he says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. But he also says in John 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Let's consider for a moment what makes Jesus the light of the world. Why is he the light of the world? The reason that Jesus is the light of the world is because Jesus is God. Because he is the eternally perfect son. Because he is holy. Because he is love. And that is what makes him the light of the world. What makes us, those who are true believers, who are children of God, who are disciples, what makes us the light of the world? The answer is really easy. It's that Jesus is God. That Jesus is the eternally perfect son. That he is holy and he is love. Not because of who we are, but because we have been united with Christ in God. Because he has graciously redeemed us and saved us. And now he has sent the spirit to live in us. Consider what it says in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 6. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Why do we shine? We shine because we've been united with Christ. Why do we shine? Why are we the light of the world? We shine because we are reflecting the true light, which is Jesus Christ. Why do we shine? We shine because he has poured richly on us and in us the spirit, the eternal Holy Spirit. You know, the word Christian was originally a derogatory term. It was actually a pejorative slur. People used it negatively. It, was, it means little Christ, little, little Christ, little Messiah. Oh, little Messiah, little Messiah, you want to tell me about your savior? But the Christians in the early world, they actually embraced that. They actually carried that name. They didn't, they didn't take it as negative. They actually embraced the, the name Christian. Why? Not because they become a, a Messiah, and definitely not because they become Jesus, but because their desire is to be just like Jesus and to reflect the truth of who Jesus is. We reflect the true Messiah. We declare with all joy, I am a Christian. Why? Because Christ is alive, and he is alive in me. This parable of the lamp is teaching us that the message of the gospel was hidden for a short time, but we are not supposed to conceal it. That's not our job. That's not what we should be intending to do. So let's get practical here for a moment. If you have ears to hear, be careful with what you hear. You have a responsibility. Have you accepted the responsibility to declare Christ, to proclaim his name to everyone? I want, to, I want to caution us to beware of the attitude that, that's like this. You know, I'll tell people, I, I'm not afraid. If somebody, if somebody asks me if I'm a Christian, I'll tell them. I will tell them, yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian. They say to me, maybe they'll say, hey, you know, I see that you live a little differently. You, you, you don't speak the same way everyone else does. You don't do the same things everyone else does. So, I mean, what's going on there? Are you a Christian or something? If they ask me, then I'll tell them. But I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to say anything about it. Unless they, you know, they, they got a 
draw first and then I'll, I'll pull out the big guns, right? No, that's not how it works. That is not the way that we should respond. What we are learning today is that is wrong. We are not to conceal the light. That is a form of concealment. We should not have the attitude, beware this attitude that sneaks in and creeps in so easily that says something like this. You know, I would love to, to talk to my family. I would love to talk to my family about Jesus, but, you know, it's just so divisive. It causes strife, and I just, I just can't handle it. I just can't. It's too much. I'm, I'm afraid that I'll, I'll, people might get mad at me. I'm just not going to say anything about it. No, is a lamp intended to be hidden under a basket? Is it intended to be put under a bed and not on a stand? No. Beware the attitude that forgets that Jesus is worthy. Beware the attitude that forgets that we are designed to reflect his light. So let your life, and by that I mean your words and your works, reflect the light of Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to be careful what we do with what we hear. Have you ever gone to a public debate? Have you ever? I'm curious. How many people have ever actually gone to a public debate, whether it's religious or non-religious, it doesn't matter. Okay, a few of us. I've been to a few of those, and um, what they are is it's, it's, it's a battle. Two intellectual giants are facing off in a battle of wits as they seek to present the most clever argument uh, with the hope that they can somehow prove that they have the superior position, right? Their, their desire is to prove their point. And for me, I don't know if those of you who raised your hands have ever been in this scenario. You, you can leave those debates thinking, wow, that was, that was great. That was fun. That was nice. But then when you leave, you're not moved. You're not going to go defend those positions. You're not going to go out of your way to, to, to be combative and say, hey, you know what? I just learned you know what I learned about this political position? You know what I just learned about this religious position? And you're not going to fight or, or, or use that information in any way. It goes in one ear and it's nice. You enjoyed it, but it's merely entertainment and it goes out the other. Now that's a public debate. What about, what about sermons? What about the way we approach our Bibles? It's easy for us to come to these things and to hear them and to see them and say, that's nice. And then to walk away. But what Jesus is telling here, us here is we need to be careful with what we hear. We need to be careful. This word, be careful, pay attention, take heed to what you hear. We're not to remain as unmoved spectators. That's not our purpose. We are to respond with obedience, especially here to this lamp imagery. We are designed to be luminaries. We are designed to shine as lights in the world. So now let's move forward and consider the second parable, which is the parable of the measure. Let me read for you once again, starting in verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use. It will be measured to you and still more will be added to you for the one who has to the one who has more will be given. And from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. When someone says, be careful or pay attention, you usually want to consider the source of who's saying that, right? You know, if I'm standing on, on the railing out here and somebody says, be careful, who's saying that? That actually makes a difference to me, right? Consider this imagery. My four-year-old son sometimes will tell me to be careful when I'm standing on a chair to get something out of a cabinet. Be careful. Why does he say that to me? He says that to me because I am already a giant compared to him. And when I stand on a chair, it makes me that much more massive and, and so high up. It's like I could be on a mountaintop compared to where he's standing. And to him, it looks as though I'm in potentially a life-threatening position. So he warns me. He says, careful, daddy, careful. And I, I, I hear what he's saying, but he's four. But if my wife comes in and she says, oh, be careful, then I immediately assume there's something wrong. That maybe the chair's breaking. Maybe there's glass on the floor, and if I step down, I'll, I'll, I'll get cut. Maybe there's some other major problem, but immediately when considering the source, I know something is, is, is worth paying attention to. When, when she says, be careful, it's a much different situation than when my son, who is four, says, be careful. I'm much more likely to hear the warning if I realize the credibility of the source, right? Here, Jesus is giving us a warning. Jesus is giving us a warning. Pay attention to what you hear, Jesus says. In many translations, it's, it's translated, be careful. It's the same thing. Pay attention. Be careful. It can also be translated and has been, be mindful. 
or carefully consider or take heed. If Jesus is saying that, then we need to be careful. We need to really recognize that we need to pay attention. It should give us pause. It should cause us to tread carefully with what Jesus is saying. Be careful how you hear what it is that you're hearing. This parable of the measure begins with an amazing promise. It's a promise of great blessing. But it ends with a really stark warning. We need to make sure that we are paying attention because the blessings are great, but the warning is bleak. So in order to understand this parable, let's let's start with the very basics here. What is a measure? What is a measure? Any of you uh, who know my wife know that my wife is a master baker. And uh, my wife, I've learned enough about baking from her to know that there is different kinds of measurements. You have a teaspoon and a tablespoon and a cup, right? That's what he's talking about here. It's a very simple thing, a measure. It's just something you use to measure. So usually it's in referencing to grain. Uh, sometimes it's referencing flour. Most of the time, though, it's dealing with, with powders that in the ancient world. Occasionally, this word measure is used to talk about water as they would take things out of um, different forms, uh, uh, you know, different pools or wells, and they would use it to give to, to stock animals, and they would have to measure out how much water you're purchasing for your animals. But usually it's in reference to grain, right? It's just a measure. So you can consider, you know, you've got a teaspoon, tablespoon, you've got a cup, etc., etc., a quart, gallon, all these different measurements, and these are important. And Jesus says, what, what measure are you using? What size are you using? Are you using a teaspoon? Because whatever measure you dip in there into the flour, that's how much you're going to get out, right? That's very simple. That's a very simple analogy. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. It's a very obvious, simple metaphor. But what will we get? What are we dipping our measure into? That's the big question. What, what is it that we're seeking to get out here? What is it that this parable is teaching us? What are we trying to gain by the measure? Last week I mentioned in the parables that, uh, that Mark 4, um, the first parable, the parable of the soils, Jesus teaches us that it's paradigmatic. It, it actually is the way that we should understand the rest of these parables. And that first parable is one in which Jesus says, if you don't understand this, you're not going to understand the rest of the parables. So as we understood last week's sermon, that there is good soil, and that's who we're talking about today, the good soil, in the good soil lands the seed, and then it grows and brings forth fruit, right? Remember, there's 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. What makes the difference in whether you are a 30-fold or a 60-fold or a 100-fold? What makes the difference in how much fruit you actually end up producing as a Christian? It seems as though the parable of the measure is connected to the production of fruit here. It seems as though this is saying, how big is your measure? How much fruit are you, however much, however big it is. Look, if you use a teaspoon, you're going to get a teaspoon. If you use a gallon bucket, you're going to get a gallon worth. What makes the difference is how much we are going to put in. Please allow me to quote for a moment from J.C. Ryle. FYI here, J.C. Ryle is phenomenal. And even if you're not ever going to preach, you're not ever going to, uh, to do an extensive research paper, you're not ever going to do a speech on the Bible, if you are just wanting to study and know the Gospels well, J.C. Ryle's exposition on the Gospels is a really helpful, beneficial, and easy-to-read tool that any Christian can grow immensely from. And you know that he is an excellent commentator when every other commentator quotes him. And so this quote is one that is in many commentaries, it is in many sermons, and it's for good reason because J.C. Ryle hits the nail right on the head when he says these words. He doesn't say much about this parable, but what he says is excellent. He says, this is a principle which we find continually brought forward in Scripture. All that believers have is undoubtedly of grace. Their repentance, their faith, their holiness are all gifts of God. But, to the, the, but the degree to which a believer attains in grace is always set before us as closely connected with his own hard work in the use of means of grace and his own faithfulness in living fully up to the light and knowledge which he possesses. Indolence and laziness are always discouraged in God's word. Labor and pains in hearing and reading and prayer are always represented as bringing their own reward. Just as the muscles of the body are strengthened by regular exercise, so are the graces of the soul increased by diligence 
in using them. That's a long quote, but I think a very helpful one in understanding what he is saying. Look, we don't grow because we are so good. We are not going to become better Christians just because we worked really hard. We cannot grow without the Spirit of God working within us. But we also will not grow if we just stop trying. We are working. It's what the um, the theo- uh, theologians call a synergistic sanctification. You work together with the Spirit. You keep in step with the Spirit, as it says in Galatians 5. You work But any growth that comes from you is not because you're just such a great person. It's because the Spirit of God is developing that fruit in you. It is still the Spirit's fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of Caleb Bunch or any other person in this room. It is still the Spirit's fruit in you. So we work hard to learn and know the truth about God. I've been in full-time ministry for many years now. I've been in ministry probably for about 10 years now, and as I look back over that, the majority of it, it was with students, with, with youth. And it's interesting to me because I have often had conversations as a youth pastor with students, and it's amazing how they will often say something like this. I just don't feel, I don't feel like God loves me right now. I just don't feel that. I don't, I feel spiritually dry. I feel barren. I feel empty. I feel disconnected from God. I just don't feel like I'm growing at all. You know, it's interesting because eventually I learned something. It took me a while, but I learned something. I learned that I should respond to these statements with questions. And these are some of the questions that I would ask them. Well, with what are you filling your mind? What are you putting in your brain? What, what entertainment are you seeking after? How are you spending your time? How much time do you put into entertaining yourself as compared to how much time you put into studying or knowing the word? It's interesting and amazing how often infatuation of the world and a disregard for the things of God coincided with these feelings of not growing at all. Why do they feel like they're not growing? They feel like they're not growing because they're not growing. And why are they not growing? They're not putting any effort in at all. Now, let me just, let me just note two things here quickly. First, Sometimes people who are genuinely seeking the Lord can, and, and really seeking to study the word and know the word can still go through seasons of, 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 of sorrow and doubt and, and hardship like these things that I've mentioned. I don't want to disregard them and blanket statement and say that everyone who has ever felt that has felt that way because they have not tried. That is not the case. But there is an oftentimes there is a connection between those who feel completely disconnected from God and those who are not trying to connect to God. Those who are not seeking to walk well with him. So let's apply this to ourselves now. This, I have to tell you, this week has been a hard week for me in preparing a sermon. It's been a hard week because I have had to look in the mirror over and over and over and see myself right here. That to the measure that I use, it will be measured to me. I have to ask myself, am I really desirous to grow in grace? Do I really desire to grow? Am I okay with the amount of faith that I currently have? Have I just parked and now I'm sitting there not moving forward or am I hungry for more of Jesus we need to ask ourselves these questions are we desirous to grow this morning as I prayed that prayer from the valley of vision one of my favorite lines is that it says the more I love thee with a truly gracious love the more I desire to love thee And I want that to be the cry of my heart and the cry of all of our hearts here in this room that we would have an unsatiable love For God, that we will desire to know him more and more. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But don't stop there. He continues and says, and still more will be added to you. This is where the great grace of God shows up here in this verse. Look, if you try, you, look, I have a teaspoon. I'm I'm dipping it in. I'm bringing it out. But guess what? And more will be added to you. That's not the limit. You are not limited to the amount that you are capable of receiving. You you try to know God a little bit and he is going to open the floodgates and he is going to give abundantly above what you can possibly imagine or think. Those times that we truly seek to grow in him, he does cause us to grow and he causes us to do that above what our efforts have been. What measure are you using? I've had to ask myself that many times this week. What measure am I using? Consider the beautiful promise that that Jesus gave. It's much better than what we put in. But also be careful how you hear. 
For from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Without stepping too much into politics, there's been a, a great shift in America in recent days in, in the amount of conversation that's occurred over socialism and the way that people speak about socialism. I want to tell you this is the opposite here of spiritual socialism. Regardless of your feelings of political uh, socialism, this is not – this is – when it comes to the kingdom of God, this is the opposite of socialism, right? He's saying, look, if you put in, if you put in the effort and you, you put in the measure, whatever you measure will be – you know, given to you, but also much more. But then he says, to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is the opposite of spiritual socialism. Be aware that if you put nothing, if you put nothing in to your walk with Christ, there's a promise of loss. So this week, I went to get a haircut. It was Wednesday. I went to get a haircut, and, and this woman saw the picture. She saw the image. I showed it to her. This is what I would like you to make my head look like by the end of this session. Okay? That's, can, can we do that? Yes. Okay. I sit down. I have confidence. She sees the picture. I have it sitting on my lap. She can still reference it at any point. And she takes out the buzzer. And now, for a while, at least, I'll have short hair. Right? She was not careful how she heard. And I said to her, you know, that's not what I, that's not what I showed you at all. And you know what she said? She said, but this will be much better than what you showed me. <laughs> right? I had to, um, had to remind myself that I'm like this. I'm like this all the time with, with the Lord. I know what I'm supposed to do. I have the word. I can reference it. I can see it. It teaches me. It shows me what I should be doing. But I respond and say, but my way will be much better. I like my way. This is how I do it. It will be more fun. It will bring more joy. It never does. It never is. It's worse every time. We need to remember this. Be careful how you hear what you hear. Be careful how you hear what you hear. We must pay attention to it. First, we must hear and be faithful to tell. That's what we learn from the lamp. Secondly, we must hear and be faithful to grow. And that's what we learn from the measure. So in closing, I just want to address three, three things really quickly. First of all, I know this is comical. I just want you to be aware. I, I hold no, no ill will against this lady, right? Uh, I'm not... I'm not angry. I've, I, I've totally forgiven. I have no bitterness towards her in my heart. I merely wanted to use that illustration because I believe it fits perfectly to what we're hearing here. Secondly, I just want to say today that everything I've said in this sermon has been for those who are believers, to those who have ears to hear. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've probably been listening to this sermon and, and wondering, what in the world is he talking about? I have no clue. But let me just tell you what you need to know about the gospel. The message that we are desirous to proclaim, this light that we are desirous to shine, is the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, the eternal, perfect, holy Son of God, humbled himself and became a man. He was born in the flesh. He lived on this earth, just like you and I are living, but with one significant difference, that he never sinned. Not once. Sin is breaking the, the law and command of God, and he never sinned, not once. But you and I, we have sinned over and over and over. We have done that because we are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. We sin because we were born that way and we sin because we like to. But Jesus never once sinned, and he went to the cross. He purposed himself to die on the cross so that he could pay for the sins of people like you and me. He died so that many would believe. And he died, but he didn't remain dead. He rose on the third day so that he might justify us. And now he lives forever to be your savior. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, please don't leave without talking to me about that. I want to know where you stand with the Lord and I desire for you to know him in a saving way. We, we want to be lights in the world. We who know Christ, we desire for you to also know him and have that light. Because it's not just a responsibility, it's a joy, it's an honor, and there is an eternal reward that comes with it. Finally, I want to note today that these parables, they should challenge us. Those who are believers, those who do have ears to hear, there's not one Christian in this room who has perfected either of these responsibilities. 
We are responsible to declare and shine the light of Jesus Christ. We are responsible also to grow. We are responsible to put in. None of us have mastered that. Not one of us. And so maybe you're sitting in your seat and you're beating yourself up a little bit right now saying, man, I just don't love the Lord enough. I just haven't tried hard enough. I haven't, my measure has been too small and you're, and you're angry with yourself and you're upset and you're looking back at missed opportunities. If that's you, please know two things. First, know that that was me this week. I was feeling that as I was studying that and know that it is, it is a sorrowful thing to look at missed opportunities. It is a sad thing, but also know that we have a God of mercy we have a God who knows our shortcomings and our feelings and a God who loves us beyond what we deserve. Obviously he does, or he would have never sent his son to die for us. So if you're sitting there and you're beating yourself up a little bit, let me know something. Jesus did not preach these truths so that you would be discouraged. He preached these truths so that you might see what you are not doing and then begin to do it so that it might encourage you and help you press ahead towards the goal. If you are here and you failed, we have a Savior who loves you, so repent and move forward and grow. And if you need help in doing that, that's why we're here as a church. We desire to help one another grow. So let's move together ahead. Let's move forward. Let's be lights that reflect our King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an amazing honor it has been to stand here today and speak the truth of your word. I pray that your word would rest in our ears, that it would not go in one and out the other, but I pray, Father, that the truth of your word would resonate with us, that it would be like the seed that lands in good soil and grows to bear much fruit. I pray for every single individual here who has ears to hear, that they would take up that responsibility to proclaim the good news about your Son. And I pray for everyone in this room who is good soil, who has ears to hear, that they would seek to grow, they would put in the work, they would make much effort to become more like Jesus Christ. But Father, ultimately, we, we just have to stop and say thank you because we cannot do these things on our own. We are unable. We are incapable. We desperately need you. So Father, please help us to be constantly relying upon you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to have all of our hope in you. May you bring the increase. Father, I also pray for those who are here that may not know you. I pray, Lord, that you would cause a work to be done in their heart. Please, Father, by, by your grace, open their eyes to understand the gospel. Let them be saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org. 